Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In his work, fighting for better infrastructures of support for queer black people vulnerable to and living with HIV, writer and organizer Kenyon Farrow is inspired by communities who love on each other under duress. Kenyon comes from a family of activists and ministers, and he came of age in the New York City of the 90s, surrounded by friends building organizations to advocate for over-policed and under-resourced queer and trans youth. Kenyon moved to New York City, however, with different ambitions for his life. He trained as an actor and even performed as James Baldwin before he pivoted in response to the fault lines he saw emerging as gentrification, criminalization, and healthcare inequalities began to rock his personal and extended networks. He has since coordinated campaigns, large and small, local, national, and global, at the intersection of public policy, public health, and social justice. Today we explore his upbringing in Cleveland, Ohio, including watershed encounters with gay black film and literature, and the events that led to a hard pivot from acting to activism. He shares how his work at the policy level is work that centers queer black liveliness and speaks lovingly about house music and house music spaces as evidence of the ways queer black communities create for themselves that which is often structurally denied. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Kenyon Farrow. Pharaoh, I am so honored and so pleased to have you on Busy Being Black. I've been following your work, dancing to the music you post on Instagram daily, and just really delighted that you've accepted this invitation to be in conversation with me and Busy Being Black listeners. So thank you for being here. No, very much my pleasure. I'm a big fan of the show, so I was very happy to join. Um, as you know, uh, I open my conversations the same way with all of my guests. How's your heart? My heart is uh, in a decent place. And I say that because, you know, if I'm honest, the last several years has been really difficult. Um, here in my, my office space, here in my house, I have a whiteboard where I literally had to just start 
writing down names of people that I was losing. And uh, there are probably, what, 14 or 15 people in the last three years um, who I've uh, been uh, close to, uh, most of whom uh, aren't you know, family members and only two of them were to COVID. Uh, most of them were a, a lot of queer folks uh, who I knew through movement work who have you know, died in the last few years, in a, you know, which has been a lot to manage. Um, so uh, that that's been it's been an intense uh, period of time. Uh, one person who was like kind of like my gay daughter, Minty, who also recently passed from cancer, uh, thirty one years old, uh, just what two months ago, you know. So it's been been a lot. Uh, I'll say that way. Um, but I feel like in the last you know month in particular. I'm feeling kind of more, you know, myself again in a, in a particular kind of way. So I've been able to, you know, move through a lot of the, the grief of the last few years. And um, I'm feeling actually pretty good right now. I'm sorry to hear about all that loss. What, what comes to mind is Dagmawi Wubschett's The Calendar of Loss. And, and particularly when you said that you, were, you had, you know, been um, writing these names on a whiteboard and kind of tracking these losses. And I don't know if you've read A Calendar of Loss, but uh, one of the things Doug Maui talks about is how during the HIV AIDS crisis, those who were doing movement work, who were themselves, you know, fighting against HIV AIDS and, and governmental negligence and neglect, were writing these lists, right? And, and keeping track of the names and the lovers and, the one-off dalliances, and um, there were these kind of calendars of compounding loss, as Doug Maui talks about them. But he also talks about the ways um, these activists and humans and lovers moved through their grief, and, and they turned that grief into something, whether it was the writing and, and poetry or the political funerals. What has helped you metabolize your grief? Um, where, where does it go? What do you do with it? Um, it's just giving myself more time to kind of sit with it. I'm the person that people call in a crisis because I maintain a very clear, you know, I'm the, I'm like, shut the fuck up, everybody. Here's what we're going to do. You know, like I'm that, I'm that person in a crisis. <laughs> and and what has also been typical of me at times of, of you know, hardship and loss and grief, uh, I have always been able to continue to work. But I found myself in the last couple of years really just like shutting down. Like I couldn't just power through and work. I found it really difficult some days to do much of anything, to be honest. And so I finally just had to like give into that and, and allow myself the space to be okay to not be okay. And if that meant that, uh, you know, I was not as sort of productive in, you know, my kind of working career life in a way that I have been, uh, then to just so be it, right? And just to give myself sort of time. Um, so that that really has been the, the thing is really to just be patient with myself and give myself the sort of time and space to, you know, feel my feelings until I felt ready to, uh, you know, kind of emerge again, if you will. And um, I think recently with the kind of recent loss of my like adopted daughter, Tiffany, the kind of lesson or the thing that I, I feel like that has kind of emerged for me now is like, you don't have time to waste, right? You do not have time to waste. And not in a, 
a sense of like, oh, I have to be like uber productive in, in a way that maybe I was before. But actually the other way that I have not that much time to waste. And so I need to really invest in the things that bring me joy and pleasure to take more time for myself, to really celebrate a lot of things that I've been able to accomplish for myself and in the world, I think. And to just, uh, yeah, give myself sort of more space to be fully present in my relationships and stuff. And so uh, maybe it's also that loss and combined with being about 18 months from uh, 5-0 uh, <laughs> in terms of turning 50 in another year and a half. <laughs> Probably those two things combined has brought me to a place of being like, I don't have time for bullshit. Like I am going to spend more time, uh, you know, for myself and really invest in the things that I'm, uh, I feel uh, compelled and, and excited about partaking in. I think you're speaking to embodiment as well, which we're going to definitely talk about later. It's something that's enchanting me at the moment. And so I want to, you know, tease that out with you. And, and I think the last question I have for you before we kind of embark on this, on this journey together, this conversation, um, is what's enchanting you? You're emerging over these past few months into a new type of liveliness, if you will. Uh, what, are you, what are you looking around and, and seeing that's, that's lighting you up? Wow. Uh, well, I guess maybe you heard it here first. Uh, falling in love recently has, <laughs> has helped bring that. To some, to, to some fruition, uh, that's been been very cool, and I, I think I, I am moved by the just ways in which I see people, uh, not just here in the United States but around the world. I think really resisting a lot of the things that uh, you know we are experiencing from uh, you know a political level in a lot of ways. And seeing people be really bold, and I think think about um, kind of big ideas, and not just you know kind of trying to you know tinker around and fix, you know uh, sort of plug up this hole, knowing that there's fifty other holes over here that need plugging up. But actually, people I think really beginning to think about maybe we need a new house <laughs> and what that looks like. And I think those that sort of visionary. Uh, way of doing political work is that I'm, I feel like I'm seeing people begin to grapple with in a lot of ways is is exciting to me. You know what's so interesting about you using um, the house metaphor is that just yesterday I was on the train home from London reading um, Mina Salami's Sensuous Knowledge and the short version is that you know she's putting forward this sensuous knowledge as um, a more integrative and embodied wisdom that comes from the engagement of um, all of our senses and faculties and uh, the wisdom that we that we hold in our bodies and so it's it's inspired by kind of a black feminist approach to you know knowledge making and she's kind of taking uh, using sorry uh, Audre Lorde's the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and she says We've been focused so long on the word tools and trying to define what the tools are, debating the tools, which tools might work better than some, when actually we should be thinking about the master's house. What is the house that needs to be dismantled and brought to pieces? 
Um, and what are we building in its place? So I think that's really interesting. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I, I didn't know this, this piece of work, but yes. I'll send you, I'll send you a link. It's very cool. Um, cool. So over the course of my research for this conversation, I found and listened to and read a lot of Kenyan, the policy, communications, strategist, activist, you know, there's this amazing talk that you gave at the, I think at the Peggy Lillis Foundation that really lit me up. And I made a lot of notes actually for another project I'm working on um, from a communications perspective. So I was, I was super grateful for, for that and for your experience and, and wisdom there. What I didn't find was um, a lot of information about the Kenyan behind the activism and the strategy and, and the writing. So I'm hoping to to dive a little bit beneath the surface um, with you today. And, and to that end, talk to me about a younger Kenyan. So if I've done my math correctly, and there, there's every chance I haven't, I'm not a math person, um, you're coming into adulthood in the early to mid 90s. And I'm curious about how you're emerging into the world in the kind of aftermath of the HIV AIDS crisis and, and what are you feeling about what it means to be or what you can be as a black gay man in the world at that time? In terms of, you know, my identity as a black gay man, um, I was extremely fortunate to be, um, you know, in a family that respected and honored and, and was in relationship with but black gay men and black lesbians in you know the neighborhood I grew up in, and so I didn't grow up with any like shh, you know or any secrets about. I knew what being gay meant. I knew gay men as a kid, people that my mom, my dad, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents were friends with, like literally the extended family. And so, you know, what you hear in a lot of sort of coming out stories, a kind of self discovery of like you know, panic, right? That, oh my God, like I might be like this, <laughs> this person or this thing because um, I certainly, um, you know, was lucky. Also, a, a story I do tell sometimes is um, to kind of iterate the point is when I was about uh, 14 is when, uh, you know, Marlon Riggs's, you know, very important film, Tongues Untied, premiered on public television here in the United States. And it was a big sort of national story because, the Republicans, much like now, <laughs> used it as a way to try to defund, uh, the, you know, the National Endowment of the Arts, the Corporation for, for Public Broadcasting, etc. Right? There was this piece of filth about, you know, black gay men and sex and HIV and etc. Uh, several stations, because of the national controversy, so this is like eight, 1989, 1990, roughly. Um, several stations pulled it. Um, so that it didn't air in some cities, but it did air in Cleveland. And my mom made us watch it. My mom would make us watch a lot of PBS, like, you know, Eyes on the Prize and, you know, stuff about Native American genocide and whatever, like stuff about the Holocaust, et cetera. We always had to watch um, a lot of historical um, documentaries, kids. And uh, my mother made my sisters and I watch Tongues Untied. It was important to her. Uh, now, in talking to her now, she knew who her son was, and so she knew. <laughs> and so, you know, there was there was that. Uh, when I started to realize, you know, that I, my own sexuality, like, I never thought that my family was ever going to disown me or be weird around me or anything like that because I, you know, I, I had a different experience. Um, that didn't mean I didn't understand homophobia in the larger world. So what it was like kind of coming of age at that particular period in time. So 
I am kind of the generation just under that sort of first generation of folks who really were adults and impacted by, you know, uh, the AIDS epidemic in a very particular way. I, you know, mostly my childhood, you know, kind of knew about it, knew people who, you know, in our community who were dying from AIDS and and then watched a lot of the like act up, you know, demonstrations on television, right? Just as, you know, around the time I was like in high school. And so when I came out roughly around the age of 18 or whatever, um, I was already beginning to think about the questions of like, you know, race and sexuality in a way because um, one, I had seen Tongues Untied. Two, my senior year in high school, I was at the public library uh, getting books on a report I had to do about Zora Neale Hurston. And I found um, In the Life and Brother to Brother in the public library, like in the same section. I knew what In the Life meant, right? Like I, I knew what that phrase meant. So I was like, oh. So, <laughs> so, so I took those two books off the shelf. And I stood in the aisle for about 20 minutes before I got up the nerve to take all the books up to the counter to check out. I put all the, the Zora Neale Hurston books on top and put those on the bottom and then checked them out. So I was already beginning to kind of think about those questions. And I, and I think that um, having watched Tongues Untied and, and then having, you know, reading those two books that the, um, I, I've could see a sort of pathway for myself. I was always kind of both interested in in art, um, you know, having studied dance as a kid and then theater and always knew I could write well. Um, those two things together really gave me a sense of like, oh, there's a kind of a possibility for me, right, uh, in the world. And um, I think those two things really shaped, you know, in ways that I don't think I was even conscious of until you know, I kind of left acting and started really doing social justice work. Then it became kind of clear to me that those things were, were there. So there's this really interesting moment in the late 90s for you when you're in New York and you are you're an actor <laughs> um, and you're actually, you know, performing as James Baldwin. And then you make this pivot. So you go from acting and you pivot towards social justice and community organizing. And, and we know that James Baldwin had a lot to say about the role of the artist. And so I'm curious about what makes you go from being the type of artist who might perform society's ills in order to call attention to them, to the type of artist who gets stuck into the muck of rebuilding the world through direct action and community organizing. So it sort of happened because a lot of my friends were like activists and organizers in New York who were around the same age. And one set of which were um, kind of in the process of starting a new organization called Fierce, which was or still is a you know community organizing project that started initially to challenge the criminalization of queer and trans you know black and brown youth in the West Village, as Christopher Street and the Christopher Street Piers in the West Village was beginning to go through that massive gentrification that happened in the late '90s, early 2000s. So, um, so I was kind of around, you know, uh, you know, that set of folks while I was also doing stuff in the theater. You know, I moved to New York in January 99, about a month before uh, Amadou Diallo was killed by the NYPD in, uh, in the South Bronx, which was a, a big international uh, case. Um, so that happened. And actually in New York at the time, in addition to 
some of the traditional civil rights groups and, and other kind of anti-police brutality organizations, there were actually a lot of a lot of new and young queer organizations that were and activists who were also getting involved in like police brutality work in New York. So that was happening. And then um, I was on tour actually um, in 2000 when, or maybe late 19, late 1999, when the Seattle WTO protests happened. So I'm watching that happen from like hotel rooms while I was on tour. Um, and then I moved back to New York uh, or come back to New York after the tour. A little while later, 9-11 happens. And, uh, you know, and then the, the sort of war on terror, all these these sort of big political moments, I just started to feel more drawn towards that work and had and decided, uh, I think in 2002, I made the decision that I was going to like stop auditioning and I'll just work until the phone stops ringing. <laughs> and that did happen. I worked for probably another year and a half just off of like folks calling me to take on certain things and, uh, and then fully transitioned, you know, into doing more, you know, kind of community organizing. And, um, and also published, my first paid published piece was uh, in spring of 2003. And uh, that was, you know, kind of when, when the shift happened. And so why the focus on public health? What was it about public health that, that called to you, that, that drew you? So around the mid-2000s, so around 03, 04, 05, um, right around my 30th birthday, several friends of mine started to either seroconvert or, or started to disclose to me that they were living with HIV. And, um, you know, and so I was doing, you know, a lot of police brutality, sort of prison and criminalization work and, you know, knew at that point that I needed to think about HIV in a kind of political way, right? So I started doing um, some work. I was uh, with an organization, uh, New York State Black Gay Network in New York. And the hard pivot to public health happened um, really in 20, uh, 2012, 2013. It was when, 2012, it was when the Supreme Court uh, made the first decision after the Affordable Care Act was passed that said that, you know, it was okay for, you know, insurance companies to get rich by, you know, the, the you know, individual mandate piece, but that states could choose whether they, you know, adopted, you know, the Medicaid expansion portion of the Affordable Care Act, right? For people who won't know what that means, can you just explain that, tease that out? Yeah. So in the United States, our, um, you know, kind of we have a patchwork <laughs> healthcare system that includes, you know, private insurance companies and then some public systems, Medicaid being the public healthcare system uh, for people who are poor. And what the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as it's often uh, referred to, did was um, it did a number of things, but one was that it established a way for people uh, to access the private insurance market with some discount rates uh, if they met certain income thresholds, et cetera, and that they weren't employed. You know, it also made more employers have health coverage for their their employees. And then the third big thing it did was expand um, Medicaid, so the sort of public health insurance program for uh, people who are poor. It expanded um, the number of people who could access it um, by increasing the, you know, sort of income threshold, you know, for uh, individuals and for families. And it 
gave states almost free money to expand those programs, the Medicaid programs at the state level, um, so that then they could make sure that people were, you know, had health coverage. But what happened, it was challenged in the court by, you know, Republican, conservative states, attorneys general, and governors. And the Supreme Court ultimately decided in a decision in 2012 that having private insurance mandate piece was fine, right? That 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 part of the law was constitutional. What it challenged was the initial vision for expanding the public health insurance program for poor people by saying that states could choose whether or not they wanted to expand their their Medicaid programs or not. And because of that, you know, knowing that Republican governors, by and large, especially Republican governors in the South, where the still to this day, the majority of black people in the United States still live in the southern states, um, the, uh, you know, HIV rates in the United States are highest in the southern states, that this is where people were going to be left out of having health care, right? And I watched that decision when it was announced on television and cried at my desk because I knew what it was going to mean, right? I knew it was going to mean that Black people were going to be locked out of out of having health care, particularly in the South, and that any real shot of really beginning to address the HIV epidemic and the racial disparities in the United States was going to be even more challenging. It was really in that moment that I made the decision to really shift a lot of my career and political work to public health, and also to specifically learn and think about and be able to be effective at a public policy level, but also specifically in the areas of research, drug development, and, you know, so R&D and NIH, you know, National Institutes of Health sort of spending on, you know, what kinds of research mattered, and in healthcare infrastructure, right? So, um, you know, that was the, the pivot. And that also was around the same time that, um, you know, PrEP was first approved, right? So, um, so those things, so then it gave me, you know, as an HIV negative person to think about PrEP to then now have to think about what this healthcare system also means for people who are HIV negative, but who could benefit from this, you know, et cetera. Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with Kenyon Farrow, an award-winning and highly regarded organizer and writer who's been agitating for economic and healthcare justice for queer Black communities for over 20 years. He was a vocal critic of the ways the gay marriage movement foregrounded the interests of affluent white gays and lesbians, which fractured the gay rights movement in ways it still hasn't recovered from. Uh, my mind is buzzing because what's so interesting, I think, about your, your timeline and your kind of particular passions and focus and how these things are all coalescing is that 
what you're talking about is happening at the same time as challenges are being brought by gay couples, mostly white gay couples, to different levels of court challenging the unconstitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act rights, which um, I think was 1993 or 94 and said that marriage is between a man and a woman. So you've got this parallel kind of gay rights movement um, challenging the courts on the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act, while at the same time you've got healthcare provisions being blocked and ripped away from poor black people. I mean, how much of your work at the time is communicating that the gay movement is part of the problem of these disparities? Thanks for reminding me, because that was a huge part of my work at the time. I honestly became really known um, in some ways in a a national way in the kind of early mid-2000s because I was um, kind of vocal and writing a lot about the impact of like the same-sex marriage movement and marriage equality, particularly from a kind of like race and racism vantage point, right? So I wrote a piece in, um, that I initially just sent through email to a bunch of friends and relatives. <laughs> and then one of my good friends, um, you know, who passed 10 years ago, my friend Donald Agarat said to me, he was like, girl, you're going to start a blog and I'm going to set it up for you and you're going to start blogging. Because <laughs> he was blogging at the time. And so... Uh, so then I blogged the piece. It was called "Is Gay Marriage Anti-Black. And what I was getting at in the piece was the construction of marriage equality as a political agenda, as a political demand, as an idea, is very much framed around a kind of notion of normalcy, right? So, so part of the, the thrust of the argument for marriage equality in the United States was about we're just like you, we live in the suburbs, we have a dog and a white picket fence, and, you know, we like to go to church on Sunday. My argument was that when you capitulate to notions of normalcy, it is in and of itself a white supremacist project, right? Because the whiteness is always the sort of normal denominator, right? By through which everything else is measured. And so if your argument is around, like, kind of normalcy, then you by default are suggesting that that there are people who are not just like you, right? And which is often, you know, black people, right? And and can also be other folks of color, other racial and ethnic minorities depending. So because the the argument was framed around that, I was like, I can't throw full support behind this campaign for those reasons, but also because a lot of just resources we're being tied up and thrown into this to the exclusion of everything else, right? So we've known for, certainly for the last 20, 25 years, like the economic disparities, right? Despite the myth of gay people having expendable incomes and, you know, whatever, these like fabulous lifestyles in the United States that like LGBTQ people are still disproportionately poor to this very day, right? disproportionately rely on social safety net programs to make ends meet, right? LGBTQ families with children in the household are far more poor than their heterosexual counterparts, right? So a movement that's supposed to be about like family and marriage and whatever took none of this into account, nor did it foreground 
the kind of like economic issues like healthcare and job security and non-discrimination in employment and housing and other things that people need in order to be like financially secure and stable. It became about these thousand plus benefits that you can get under marriage, right? And not considering like who's not married, who in this country is less likely to be married and also who marriage when you already have a certain amount of assets benefits right like from that vantage point from an economic standpoint right which is white men largely and so i spent a lot of time in the 2000s in a lot of of like debates and writing and kind of and, and also working with some other queer folks of varying races who also had various critiques of same-sex marriage as a movement meanwhile also in the, or the 2000s like i said I'm, I'm having a lot of my friends or black and brown men disclose to me that they're living with HIV. Uh, we are beginning to have these public health conversations about, uh, you know, the uh, sort of study that happened in 2005 that, you know, out of five cities, it was something like 46% of black gay men on average were living with HIV. And yet the national conversation is about marriage, right? And so I was pushing back against those kinds of notions and and HIV certainly became and, and was and still is you know a, a, a social justice issue through which there was an active attempt to ignore because it to talk about the disparities in HIV that still existed among gay men meant that you couldn't also talk about we're just like you and everyone else right and our kind of white picket fence middle class existences it troubled that discussion. And so there was a move away from a lot of LGBT national groups from talking about the HIV epidemic at all. Anyone who knows me or has listened to the show knows I can't stand gay marriage. Like I just, just as a concept and, <laughs> and because I read Roderick Ferguson's One Dimensional Queer, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. ah, I was like yelling at the sky. I was like, I knew it, you know, I knew this was no good. Um, and, and, and how many people had to be forgotten about and left behind in order to put forward some sanitized, desexualized gay identity? Part of what I was railing against, and, and which I've only recently, be, recently been able to name, it also impacted who I thought I could be in the world and who what I thought was an acceptable version of, of gayness to be and to aspire to. And it's just so fascinating to me how the mechanics of this work to shape culture more broadly as well. It, it absolutely did. And, um, you know, I think just too, we're living with the ramifications of it now. So, you know, we were sort of, or people were sort of told that, you know, well, you know, we have to win this fight for marriage equality and then we'll do everything else. Meanwhile, <laughs> where's yeah. the everything else? Where's right? everything like, else? Yeah. That didn't yeah. happen. And I think that the LGBT movement was ill-equipped to deal with the kind of blowback that we're experiencing now, right? That the seeing um, growth of, of neo-fascist and white nationalist sort of militias and movements and, and uh, mass shootings at, at gay clubs and Nazis protesting drag performances and then the, you know, 500 some odd anti-LGBT bills that have been put forth in state legislatures. We have no infrastructure to deal with that crisis anymore because we shot our wad on marriage equality, so to speak. 
Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and because it and because it was so um, exclusive, there couldn't then be and there can't now be an acknowledgement of all the things and all the people who were left behind to secure this. Right. This kind of I mean, can you imagine white gays turning around saying we made a mistake? <laughs> we should have thought more. Um, no. <laughs> right. I can't. We should have thought more about what that means. This brings us to a, another element of your work, which is these kind of. Um, various infrastructures of care. I, I imagine that there are infrastructures of care, ways of being and showing up for each other that you've witnessed happening at more grassroots levels um, that might offer us some insights or some tips about how we can refocus. You know, on the one hand, when we're talking um, specifically about, you know, kind of HIV, let's say, you know, we often in the space of the work, there's kind of like a, oh, it's either, you know, access to treatment and getting virally suppressed and you equals you and PrEP access, a sort of biomedical sort of frame, or it's the harm reduction, you know, housing access, you know, like there, there are these other sort of pieces. And I'm like, they all actually, to me, go together. And I think when I think about kind of the, you know, care as it, as it were, we do have, you know, moments and, and histories of ways in which like we care for one another and take care of one another. I think the you know AIDS epidemic kind of provides a, a clear window into that where, you know, you obviously have in the space of both kind of government neglect and wide scale kind of societal homophobia and transphobia and kind of indifference, queer communities coming together to take care of one another, right? To take care of their, their friends and loved ones who are, are dying or suffering, et cetera, right? And raising money to, to take care of individuals, um, et cetera, right? So those things were happening. And then you also have some of the um, kind of community infrastructure that sort of serve that purpose. And so for me, I think I think there's a lot of attention being paid in the last few years to um, the house and ballroom community, right? Which I think is really important and like a critical intervention into like a lot of discussions. So like to see, you know, polls on television and other things were really focused on the legacies of like how in house and ballroom communities, like people literally took care of one another in like the space of, you know, one of the worst human crises we have recorded. But at the same time, there were other ones. And, you know, I often think about like house music, right? And house music spaces in particular as another site of that kind of work, right? So not only does house music and house music spaces, I feel like within kind of queer context, kind of take a back seat to how we talk about kind of ballroom communities and house, house and ballroom in that sense, but also takes a back seat to in a larger culture to like hip hop. Like we're, we're this year celebrating hip hop's 50th anniversary and like house music was created around the same time in kind of similar kind of communities and also becomes a global phenomenon. Like how, like think about like electronic house music like influenced so many other things, including hip hop, right? And yet we don't really think about it. But I very much remember, you know, being in my late teens, early 20s in the, you know, late 90s uh, or like the early 90s rather, and how much like house music was, was like the de facto music when you went to particularly black gays, clubs um, and 
how the messages in that music and the way in which people interacted in those spaces was about a lot of kind of emotional and spiritual caretaking in a way. Think about like kind of some of the songs from that era, right? Like you think about like, you know, keep pushing on, things are gonna get better, it won't take long, keep on pushing to the top. Or inspiration, you're an inspiration to me, let's celebrate life in the name of those not living, right? That to me is all about the crisis of the moment that people were having and not necessarily having a church home to go to or their biological families, but that club space became a way to uh, release and and to experience like community and joy and passion and and dance and everything else. And if you and a lot of house music has those kind of messages even to this day um, that I think was very important for for us. And, and and that you know even parties now, Shelter in New York and a couple of other ones still have annual parties where that the party is just about remembering the people that we've lost, right? And people come post pictures or wear t-shirts of people from the scene that have passed. A lot of them are folks who died of AIDS, um, which I think is a beautiful. And um, it's exciting to see so many like now kind of outdoor house music in the park in Atlanta and Soul Summit in New York and some things that happened in Chicago and Detroit and even here in Cleveland. Like the house music is kind of having somewhat of a, of a, of a moment again, but, but I want people to think about it beyond, you know, just, you know, oons oons, right? Or because Beyonce decided like to do a dance music record that like we have these lineages of, of that work and of that kind of creating space for care uh, that's really important. You wrote uh, an essay in Healing Justice Lineages, which is um, out now by um, Cara Page and Erica Woodland. You have an essay called uh, A House is a Temple, How Dance Music Culture Became a Refuge in the HIV AIDS Epidemic. Uh, quote, the feeling of being in a house music space can be powerful. I have myself and have seen others behave in a similar manner to being mounted by a spirit. The rhythms of the music, the other dancers, the vocal messages of the songs all create a powerful space where you feel like you've become so fully present in your body and your spirit. You lose your sense of self and feel completely one with everything around you. Uh, the music itself, as you've just said, has themes of love, community, connection, and self-empowerment. Um, we're creating a community um, of love, care, spiritual renewal, and healing. And I had this conversation with Zinzi Minot, who's a dancer and artist. And she was talking about, she electrified me with this. She's talking about musicality and rhythm and saying that to be in rhythm isn't to be on beat, it's to be ahead of the beat. Mm -hmm. And that because black musical traditions and black dance traditions are one of relationship, uh, they're also one of call and response. We're doing this dance together in community. Um, that we're actually projecting ourselves into the future, that uh, rhythm is an act of futurity, she says, mm -hmm. and that um, what Black people are doing when we come together in spaces like this to, to commune through dance and with music is we're saying we're going to be here when the beat drops. Mm. And so I'm thinking of this in the context of, of, of your work and this um, reverence that you have for house music and, and what becomes... Um, possible. It's not only that there's an infrastructure of, of, of care in crisis for right now, but that together we might kind of re-enliven our prospects for the future. You know, things in general sort of can come in, in various sort of waves and, and cycles or things sort of come back into, you know, 
the floor and, and then go back into the background. And I do think that it's, it is interesting given how much violence we're, we're witnessing in the world that, um, you know, in a way, house music is taking up more public space and cultural conversations again um, in ways that I think maybe, maybe speaks to a need for community that people really have and, and for a certain kind of connection, right, which, which could be sort of a dynamic sort of post-COVID, right, and the, the kind of experience of lockdown. And so people, you know, needing that kind of, of human community again, you know, in a way. Um, and, and so, yes, I, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting um, thing. And I, I like this idea of like being ahead of the beat because it's, it's true. Because if you know part of the, the dynamic, both in, in house music, but I feel like in a lot of Black sort of folk or cultural dance traditions, right, it's like the, the ability to improv, right, to take a dance vocabulary and make it your own, right, in the moment, right, is, is being ahead of it, right, because you're, you know, in a sense, yeah, responding to what you know is going to happen, right, in, in music and sound or responding to other people in the space. So, um, I, yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting kind of frame. And, um, yeah, and I, I, did, I, I want more of those kinds of spaces while I feel like we're also losing community space, right, in so many ways. I can't believe we're almost out of time. Um, so as our conversation draws to a close, I'd love to draw you out on embodiment and pleasure. I'm really interested in embodiment and pleasure recently. And I think it's this, these themes are emerging in social justice movements quite prominently. And I suppose it's been resonating with me because it's made me aware, um, you know, reading Adrian Marie Brown or um, attending courses by Advaya or, you know, thinking about Andreas Weber and his work, this kind of constellation of scholars, thinkers, poets, movement workers, cultural workers focused on returning us to our bodies has made me more aware of the ways that um, I've learned to ignore my body, the discomfort, the tiredness, the eroticism, the pleasure. Um, and so I'm appreciating this encouragement to come back to myself and to appreciate my body as a, as a sensory vessel, right? And it occurs to me over the course of this conversation that so much of your work, even if it's not named as a practice of embodiment or concerned with embodiment, is one of protecting the sanctity of the queer Black body. And so I wonder how you might weave all that together, how you might talk about how embodiment and pleasure informs your work as someone fighting for queer Black people's right to equal access to health and well-being. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways you can um, mistake maybe my work and others just because I a lot of I focus so much on kind of politics and policy as disembodied, right, in a sense. But but actually for me, it is because I think I, I tend to think in terms of structures and in order for us to be able to be free and experience pleasure and joy in a liberated sense and not in a consumption sense, right? The, the vision of that is that we have to actually also think about the, the sort of structures in the world that impede that, right? So, you know, from the meta level of, of racism and white supremacy and anti-blackness and homophobia and transphobia, 
classism, which is something I feel like we don't talk enough about in the LGBT community in general, those systems, um, you know, create self-doubt, create self-hate sometimes, create anxiety, create emotional challenges, create physical challenges. And if we don't actually deal with the infrastructure of the world and try our best to sort of push and reimagine and also rebuild things that take those stressors away from people's lives so that they can actually embody, not as a response or rejection of, but because this is the, the full extent of my, my personhood, right? Um, is is why I focus on public policy and those sort of issues. But people also know that I'm like I'm super in the house music. You could talk to me about Prince all day long. Like I, you know, like the, the things, that, you know, the things in culture that I pay attention to. And coming from a culture, you know, as a, as a, as an actor, um, you know, performer, so I um, get those things. But I, I, to me, that's where they come together. I think what is sometimes challenging for myself personally is figuring out how to be fully authentic, especially like, cause so much of like in digital space, it's all so much like performance of like a, a projection of oneself in, in different ways. And because also working in like, you know, just like nonprofit ink and being seen as a certain kind of leader or whatever, people will put you in positions that like, that, that almost uh, assume that you can't be interested in sex and pleasure or, or that you have a certain kind of like, bougie or a certain kind of respectable sort of attachment to certain things when when I don't on so many levels if you really you know me I don't go fuck about none of that but, <laughs> but you know and so for me I, I do struggle with like and also so yeah trying to find those the kind of like authentic way to both be my full self, which includes my sort of intellectual and political kind of like life, but also includes like my kind of social and personal and sexual life, etc. And not have it seem like I'm trying to force one thing or the other, but how to like actually embody those things, you know, in ways. I think one way that I've done it um, in some respects is, you know, as much as I've sort of like done a lot of policy work and, you know, done, you know, things in DC or at the UN or wherever, WHO, all these places, you know, you will rarely catch me in a full, in a suit, right? You will rarely catch me dressing. <laughs> and then people, and people it like sort of comment on it or people comment that like sometimes in those spaces on a hot mic, I curse because I am rejecting and I want other people, particularly like, I feel like for a while it was like young black gay men coming into this work thinking that you had to like wear a suit or look a certain way to be seen as having a brain or be seen as like leadership and et cetera. And, and yeah, because I don't do those things that probably has cost me some, you know, certain kinds of jobs or awards or certain things that I just don't, I, I'm not kissing your ass to get <laughs> period. Like, you know, <laughs> you sure. Recognize me or you don't. But but to do those sort of things so that people sort of see that there's another way, you know, beyond like what some of the kind of weird professionalized ways that kind of cut people off from themselves embodied. So for me, it's like those are like the two ways, you know, it sort of shows up for me both, you know, uh, in terms of like I think about policy and structural work because I think it actually 
is a thing that creates violence in people's lives and we need to transform so that people can 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 be embodied in a different way. And even for myself, like thinking about how I negotiate, you know, the pressures of being like a professional person in this work and also being who I actually am in the world and having to kind of help people understand the congruence between those things, which is not discongruent, but it's about what people's imagination of a person like me should be like or what I should do. Um, just before I jumped on this call, actually, Adrienne Marie Brown, I was reading an article. Uh, she's in conversation with Prentice Hemphill. Uh, Adrian says, I have tried to turn down my real self in order to fit better into the world in so many different ways. Now I feel like part of what the shine means for me is that I'm not trying to effort or turn myself up or turn myself down anymore. Um, this is how I feel. This is what you got. It might disappoint you. It might disappoint me, but that's who the fuck it is. Period. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, Kenyon, we're out of time and I've so thoroughly enjoyed um, this conversation with you. I have been so enchanted and delighted by the musical selections you offer on the daily on your Instagram. And so what song would you like Busy Beyond Black listeners to go and put on and dance around their spaces to after they leave this conversation? Oh, good question. Okay, so, um, all right, so my, my pick today uh, is going to be uh, Joy, uh, J-O-I, a uh, song called Black Magic Potion. Joy is one of my favorite musicians and uh, it's just so funky and <laughs> first off and also because the song is about you know the totality of of black people's experience uh, is powerful and uh, and and does constitute a form of, of magic right it's kind of black magic potion as the the title and so I, I love it for just the sound of the song but also you know for what it is expressing and 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 not expressing from a kind of black excellence from a kind of like bourgeois achievement standpoint but like actually black people have moved through so much in this world and we've moved so much in this world that it is black magic ashe kenyan thank you so much for this beautiful conversation um i'm really glad you're here thank you my pleasure josh kenyan farrow is a writer editor and strategist working at the intersection of public health and social justice. Kenyon has a long and distinguished track record working in communities impacted by HIV, and BET named Kenyon a modern black history hero. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness, and my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.